This is Religion Unplugged, an interview series about the impact of religion in public life around the world. Chris Moody is a correspondent at Vice News in New York City. He's also a friend of Religion Unplugged and the Media Project. We caught up with Chris recently as he completed a year-long journey around America in a tiny house that he and his wife Christy built into a cargo van. It was his adventure reporting on the real America after reporting on politics professionally for years at CNN in New York City and Yahoo News in Washington, D.C. Hi, this is Paul Gladder with Religion Unplugged, and I'm sitting here in my backyard in New Jersey with a friend named Chris Moody. Chris has been a journalist, and he's had an interesting journey the last uh, few months. By the way, we're in a backyard, so there are dogs barking (laughs) around the neighborhood. Anyway, well, I was living in New York City with my wife, and um, to keep it short, we ended up giving away and selling all of our possessions, just about, moving in to a tiny house that we built ourselves inside the back of a cargo van and traveling the country for the next 15 months, um, crossing country four times, traveling 35,000 miles in search of communities in the United States that are opting out of mainstream ways of living. And what I mean by that is people building their own systems in housing, like with the tiny house movement or with um, people living with through just solar power or people that are saving high percentages of their income and retiring very early, basically hacking life in ways that most Americans never knew that they could and finding new ways to live in America, all while kind of doing it ourselves. My wife and I live in a 72-square-foot solar-powered tiny house together, and uh, we still get along quite a bit. <laughs> wow. Yeah. No, it's so... Okay. Well, you definitely did the unplugged side of... Uh this conversation, but I'm curious uh, on this issue of religion, what like, um, what were some takeaways? How did you encounter religion as you traveled around? Um, what were some, some highlights on that? Um, if you read Travels with Charlie, which is a John Steinbeck's book of him traveling across the country in his own little camper van, camper van with his dog named Charlie. In the joy of this journey, Right. We have to imagine that my father is, uh, to a more or less a degree, sort of anthropomorphizing like crazy, which was a necessity because if he was honest about what Charlie really felt, there'd be no book. Right. He had to pick him up to take him in and out of the truck. He hated that. He hated being lifted. He would growl at you. But indeed, to get him out and to get him in, you had to lift him up and down. And not only that, when my father stayed over at some hotel someplace, Charlie, of course, was not let in the hotel room. He had to sleep in the truck. He made a point to try to visit a church every Sunday because he thought that was a great opportunity to just sit and listen to the culture, listen to the country, and see where it was at that place. And that was in the, I believe in the 1960s when he took that trip. So we tried to replicate that a little bit in the way we lived our lives in that we would try to visit churches and see how the rhythm and and the way people, the ideas and thoughts people are having across the country. And and so we visited a lot of different denominations, Methodists, Baptists, um, Episcopalians, and we also stayed um, in one of the most rural um, Benedictine monasteries in North America called Christ in the Desert in northern New Mexico, uh, where you, you go to a place called Ghost Ranch north of Santa Fe. This is where um, Georgia O'Keeffe did a lot of her paintings. You turn down a forest road. 
and you drive 14 precarious, muddy miles along a river in some of the most beautiful scenery most people have ever, have never seen. Once that road ends, you drive two more miles <laughs> on a private dirt road, and there you find a monastery where about 50 to 60 monks live in the tradition of the Benedictine um, style, uh, which is the same as they've been doing since the 500s. And uh, it was a spectacular reset in our lives to um, to really slow down and, and see a community in America living, I would say, more differently than anyone we'd ever seen. Post-Christian America, people look at the, at the demographics and say, well, wait a second, it's like 75% self-professed Christians. What do you mean by that? Well, it's a facade. I believe that clearly we still have lots of Christians in America. Most Americans identify as Christians, but Christianity, as it has been historically understood, Tucker, is no longer at the center of our nation and, our, and of how we think of ourselves. I mean, Rod Dreher has that book out in the last couple of years, you know, The Benedict Option. Um, did it seem like something in, that he talks about? Um, you know, and, and I'm curious, like, how did you find this order? Do they welcome visitors typically? Um, so how did you, you, you know, decide to go there? What was the experience? You know, tell us about your week there. What do you experience, you and your wife? Part of the Benedictine tradition is to welcome any guests as though they are Christ himself. And so they will take you in, give you a place to stay, and serve you three meals a day. And you can participate in the services with the, the monks, which begin at four o'clock in the morning and go until about seven at night with multiple multiple services throughout the day. And uh, essentially, they, they have a mass on Sunday, but also throughout the whole week, the monks together sing through the entire book of Psalms. And it's absolutely beautiful. It's mostly in English here um, and then partially in Latin. And uh, guests don't have to go if they don't want. They can just come and enjoy the scenery. Um, but, but to your question about the Benedict option, uh, my reading of Rod Dreher's book was that um, the American secular culture is encroaching fast upon orthodox Christian views, and it's up to Christians to build their own systems uh, in order to make sure that they have a strong culture that's insulated within American culture so Christianity can survive. Mm -hmm. And I think that's always been a bit of the monastic life, like setting, setting up real guardrails in your life so that you can focus on what you think is important, on, on God. And and, and with the, the monastics, these are men who, you know, they don't force it on anyone else, of course, but in their own life, in order to feel what they need to be closer to God, they have to put up these guardrails, and that is the strict schedule of the monastic life. Mm -hmm. But as a guest, as an outsider, you can come get a taste of this. One of my favorite parts of the experience was when you go into your room, which is just a little cell, you know, very simple mm -hmm. room with a desk and a bed. Mm -hmm. There's a lanyard with a card on it. And if you put that lanyard on, that tells everyone else in the monastery that you're wishing to be silent and to not be spoken to. <laughs> and um, we tried very hard to stick to that, to stay silent. My wife, Christina, stayed silent for 100 hours. It's about a week. Wow. Um, and I met some nice people, so I talked to them. But to be silent for a week um, means to not have an uninterrupted thought, hmm. to, not, you know, to be able to go through the day exploring your own thoughts uh, and going deeper into yourself than you ever can in normal life. And it's incredibly powerful mm. to do so. One big takeaway to switch topics just a little bit was at the monastery, there's about 50 to 60 monks. 
most of them, a majority, are not, even though we're in the United States, are not white faces. Mm. They were they were African faces, Asian faces, um, and Latin American, uh, black and brown. Wow. Uh, that was a majority. Mm. And that we can see is a kind of a microcosm in the population of the capital C church mm-hmm. going forward. Paul, you've seen that the energy in the church right now is not white and Western. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. African or global South, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that is changing the dynamics of the church. Mm-hmm. It's changing uh, and it's causing, um, you know, um, tension between cultures yeah. Yeah. because Northern white European faces are used to being in charge. Mm-hmm. And that dynamic is changing. And we're seeing it on a macro scale. And I saw it on a micro scale mm-hmm. in this traditional Benedictine monastery. Wow. And, uh, and you know, it, you see it very strongly that, you know, this is something that is going to be changing the way the church approaches its contact with the world. And I think white Christians are, need to be ready to have conversations that they're not used to having. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, we this this past week, just a few days ago, Pew Research, which does a lot of good research on religion and public life and demographics around religion, they came out with some new data that showed, in short, one of the takeaways was that you know, people in America who identify as Christian has gone from three-fourths or 75, around 75% of Americans to like two-thirds, 66% in the last decade. It slid that much. And uh, I think the other parts of it were, you know, there's a rise of what we call the nuns, uh, people who don't identify uh, as anything. N-O-N-E-S. You're right. The nuns is in the Catholic Church, but it's N-O-N-E-S. And also younger generations, especially millennials, are seeing a drop-off in religion. So talk to us more about uh, you know those findings. Uh, did how how what does it look like in America from your vantage point on the road um, with that kind of a backdrop of, of of data? Oh, there's so much to unpack here um, because if you look really close into the data and dig down, you find that the energy of the church is in more orthodox, traditional um, ways of of approaching it uh, that are they're growing faster than the more liberal, um, secularized uh, uh, church denominations. We've seen the decline in the mainline church for decades now, right? Um, while traveling the country and visiting a lot of churches, we visited, um, well, dying churches that had only a handful of people that were elderly, 99 or 100% of the church. And I saw pastors getting up and having a time of real talk with their congregation saying, mm-hmm. look, the trend line is not good. We as a denomination are going to have to be closing down a percentage of our churches and I'm sorry to say that this church is probably not going to be here a year from now. This church started in Marysville in 1850, and the congregation sat on hay bales. It moved to this location in 1950, and church bells rang every hour. But today, those bells are silent, and the doors are closing. It was very sad, for, very emotional on Sunday for a lot of us. Pastor Rich Hinkle gave his final sermon here at First Presbyterian Church in Marysville last weekend. The church can't afford to keep him anymore, something he says is a nationwide dilemma. A couple dozen churches each week are closing in the United States, so we're part of that. And to be in that room when that news is delivered is a real moment. This is not some abstract thing about trend lines. This is people's community life that is going to be shattered. Something they have relied upon since they were children is going to evaporate Mm -hmm. uh, in their life. 
Mm-hmm. And so this is something very serious. Um, and, and of course, that's, you know, that's a church that's dying. There are churches that are thriving. Um, the the millennial drop, I think, is fascinating. And I think you can write entire books about it, exploring into the subdata of why this is happening. But I, I'd like to speak of, about it a little bit maybe from my own perspective. I am a mid-1980s born millennial. I'm, you know, I guess I'm considered an old millennial, but I'm, I'm, in, the, I'm in the pack, right? Mm-hmm. And the, I grew up uh, in an in evangelical Christianity um, as the son and grandson of Southern Baptist pastors myself. And what I experienced looking into the capital C church, at least the evangelical Protestant church, was a growing politicization of the church where the emphasis of the church's focus just so happened to align with what the Republican Party cared about at that moment. Mm -hmm. And I saw that trend line even as a child. Um, wondering why we were focusing so heavily on certain issues that are maybe mentioned in the Bible a couple of times, but certainly not the main emphasis through the narrative threadline of the of the Bible in the Old and the New Testament. Right. And seeing that, like seeing values voters voting guides, you know, that had the evangelical view of the balanced budget amendment, why God wants you to support the balanced budget amendment. And, yeah. you know, please, like, I, <laughs> there are bigger things that we are commanded to focus on, both in the Old Testament and in the New, um, that really had very little to do with the Christianity that I encountered growing up. So right now, let every demonic network that has aligned itself against the purpose, against the calling of President Trump, let it be broken, let it be torn down in the name of Jesus. We declare right now that there is a hedge of protection over our president, first lady, every assignment, the purpose they carry in the mantle, and the Supreme Court justices, if we get two more, come on, if we get two more. And so I think you have a lot of millennials that, in, that experience the same thing. And now that they've grown up and they've read a lot more books and they've thought and they've met different diverse people, they're thinking, wow, is my American Christianity so far from what it is supposed to be? And this is, is this Christianity? If so, I want nothing to do with it. Whereas I think if you expose someone to the, to the raw words of Jesus Christ and the commands of Yahweh in the Old Testament, they would see a very different uh, draw a very different conclusion about what Christianity means than if you grew up in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s and were exposed to modern American evangelical Christianity. And there's a big gulf there. And I think the church needs to find a way to um, bring it together and get back to its roots. And some people are working on this. But if they don't, I think that trend line that you spoke about, Paul, is going to get bigger and bigger and people are going to start to really get worried. Yeah. What really drove us in this trip was looking at two sets of data, one being the economy of the United States and the high level of prosperity that has come in the past few years in this country, combined with the rising rates of loneliness, anxiety, and depression, and unfortunately, especially among younger people, suicide. And wondering what is going on here? Why is this high level of prosperity coinciding with this sadness, what is missing. And so we wanted to go into the country to find people that are taking life very seriously and living according to their values as deliberately as possible Mm -hmm. to see if they're happier. 
And what can we learn from them as normal people for people that take life more serious, not more seriously, but are really thinking very deeply about how to live well and then applying it. Mm -hmm. And whether people that we encountered were of the political left or the political right, it was fascinating to see how they all drew very similar conclusions. Mm -hmm. And that was that they have to have a core value or a series of values that drive their life. And they do whatever they can to make sure that the inertia of the American culture doesn't wash out their core values. And you have to work very hard to make that happen because American culture is incredibly powerful mm -hmm. as it's pushed out through television media, increasingly streaming, um, where you have American cultural media in your pocket, in your phone at all times, and follows you through the house, mm -hmm. into your bedroom, into mm -hmm. your bathroom. You never can get away with it. How can you ever combat that? Like you will, you will lose, right? So, so these are people that have these these core values that they they put up guardrails to protect themselves from the culture washing that out. Number two is their conclusion is some form of voluntary simplicity, mm -hmm. and that allows them to focus on the essentials in their life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and at, at the end, many of them are much happier mm. in the way that they live their life. And to find that all these people from all walks of life, when they try to think about these things deliberately. They come to very similar conclusions, simple life focused on family and making sure you know what you believe and trying to keep that as the North Star of your life. On the road, you found a lot of interesting and unusual things. Tell us about some of the, you know, how many people live like you guys have in, in vans or in, um, you know, tents and things like that. Um, it's, it's hard to draw the, the numbers of how many people live on the road because some people do it seasonally, you know, but KOA looked at some numbers and they found about a million people are living on the road at a given time in America. So as technology has connected more people, it has increased awareness of people living on the road and increased the amount of information available so more people can do it. In the past, you kind of had to pave your own way and figure it out on your own. Now we can go on Reddit forums, on YouTube, on Instagram, and find an entire community of other people that have shown this can be done. I'm a normal person. I did it. So can you. And that has inspired more and more. And that has created meetup groups and societies and all kinds of infrastructure to support people living on the road. Uh, there's one group uh, called Escapees that has, um, in, in outside of Houston, Texas, they have a campus that's for basically a, like kind of like a, um, a stopping point for people who live on the road where um, there's one room that all their mail goes to. And according to the U.S. Postal Service, 5,000 people technically live have domicile in this one room near Houston, Texas. Um, and then the company takes their mail, scans it, and emails it to them so they can get it wherever they are on the road. But there's a whole infrastructure for this now mm -hmm. where people have decided to give away or sell their things, slim down, and that has, in effect, what they trade that for is more freedom. Mm -hmm. To be able to wake up with a view of the Colorado Rockies or the Pacific Ocean. Mm -hmm. And as someone who's done this, as someone who's given up all my stuff. Mm -hmm. You think you're going to miss it. Paul, I, I don't miss anything as a material possession. I miss having consistent hot running water. But as far as a th stuff thing, I don't. I, I can't think of anything. I mean, I'd like to have, you know, a, my record player back, but surfboard. it's so, a surfboard. <laughs> but then I can rent one. You know, it's so yeah. insignificant that I don't feel this pang of longing. Um, and when, when we gave away our, our things, it was a very different experience um, for my wife um, because she came from an immigrant family 
who came to the country as quickly as they could because of a political exile situation and didn't have a lot of things. And for them, for like their daughter to just give up all her things is a little nutty, you know? <laughs> uh, and But she has found herself even that she is very satisfied with having less too. The challenge, Paul, is going to be as we move into a normal life and maybe find a home that doesn't have wheels underneath it, how can we carry the values of living on the road to normal life? And that's going to be the challenge. When I talked about like the, the American culture being very strong, I find myself very easily getting succumbed to it. And I have to protect myself to try to make sure we're staying rooted in the core values that we developed while we lived very simply on the road. Well, yeah, let's hear. This is fascinating that, you know, the book by uh, Michael Sandel at Harvard, he did a, uh, one book. Of, I can't remember the title, but it was about um, in America, everything's for sale. And he draws that out. And so it's it's it's, um, you know, it's interesting when you when you uh, try to resist that or, or just see it differently like you have. Um, so talk to us about what you're up to now, like this journey. Where where is it taking you? I understand, you, you know, you've got a fellowship, you're writing. Um, so tell us what to look for from uh, from the Moody family coming up. Um, I have um, been awarded uh, a fellowship, uh, the, the Robert Novak Journalism Fellowship with the Fund for American Studies, and they have supported a, a writing project about this uh, this trip that we've taken to not only talk about our own story, but about the communities we met along the way, which we are profiling. Um, and so <clears throat> I'll be writing a lot about um, them for different magazines. Uh, and then our goal is to turn it into a, a book, a book about America at this moment and why we chose to do what we did and why we're not alone, why there are more people all over this country that are doing this um, that hopefully can inspire other people, maybe not to go build a complete solar system and live off grid or something like that if they don't want to, but what can we learn from these people that are taking risks on the fringes? What what can we take back to our normal lives in our homes, in our communities? Uh, and I would argue live better because the trend lines are not good right now as far as the way people are feeling in this prosperous society Lots of people are feeling lonely and depressed, as we talked about earlier, and something is going to have to change. It's easy to be pessimistic today because all the news seems to be bad news, and that's what happens when you read the news all day. You know, it used to be, Paul, remember, you read the news in the paper in the morning, takes, you know, maybe half an hour, and then you go to work and you live your life. Maybe you watch the evening news for a half hour in the evening, and then you go to your family life. Now, people's family lives are completely punctuated by the news. And the news ha has us, like I said earlier, it follows you throughout the room in your pocket. You get these alerts that interrupt your day. So it's easy to feel that everything is, is going downward all the time. It's not. <laughs> there are very high, high points in, in this country. And I think the very communities that we visited are our testament to that, that show um, that, it's, that it's possible to pave your own way, to build your own community. I mentioned earlier that I don't miss anything material, but I will tell you what I do miss, and that is consistent community in seeing people that you see every day or every week, something that people take for granted that, oh, I got to go to this dinner thing or this Bible study or this thing on Tuesday nights. And sometimes you complain about it and everything. But that level of mundane community, that normalcy, once you take that out of your life, you find out that you desperately miss it. So when we go back to living in an apartment or a house, we will take community life more seriously than ever before. 
not doing so passively where, oh, we'll see so-and-so whenever we see them or we'll go to church whenever. No, no, no. We are going to be setting up systems in our lives, in our life that ensures that we have a steady flow of community coming through our home and that we're going out, um, that things that we're responsible for doing, engaging in civil society uh, in a far less passive, far more direct and intentional way than we ever did. Because once you get a taste of what it's like to not have it, you can't imagine going back to a stationary life where you choose not to have it. How can, uh, I guess, church communities, religious communities, how, can we, how do you think we can do it differently um, in terms of caring for our communities from what you, again, what you saw on the road? I think you can start by taking Jesus seriously. Um, and okay, so Christianity has kind of been co-opted by the Amer- by the by the West. Um, but to live actually in the way Jesus Christ says you should live, there's nothing more countercultural that I've ever read <laughs> than that as an American. And so I think churches should maybe take a reset and say, okay, what did Christ actually mean, and what would what would it look like if we actually tried this out, as opposed to cherry-picked things we liked that were easy to do. Um, and, and, and you know, in our lives, because the Bible talks about so many things, you know, you kind of have to choose what to emphasize in your life. But I, I think it would be very helpful to say, what if we just started in the Sermon on the Mount and try to live a week, live a, a Sermon on the Mount week? What does that look like? It's probably going to change every single part of your day, <laughs> you know? Um, also on a more practical level, people in your congregation are probably dying for connections with people. This is true, especially with, with younger people that don't feel, and I mean, by, by the connections, I mean real human interaction that is uninterrupted by the constant zinging and pinging of technology. So if you haven't already, um, make sure that there are community groups. Many churches do this, of course. Um, dinner parties where people can come and be fed and have conversations and again, I think I should emphasize that are uninterrupted. Also, this is something that is fragmenting our culture, and that is intergenerational relationships are less and less. Young people go to young people churches, older people go to older people churches, and oftentimes there are no intergenerational relationships. I think it's really important that your 20-somethings that are just getting married are hanging out with seniors that have been married and are going on double dates with them. And Inter, uh, interacting through generational lines. And I think that is the mark of a very healthy church. And I think there's too many churches that are focusing just on one generation and people are missing out on, on that because the church is intergenerational. It must be for the village, so to speak, to work. You have to have that, that balance of wisdom and youthful energy. Well, thanks for joining us at Religion Unplugged and our conversation today. And uh, Chris, we look forward to your book. And, you know, we'd love to have you back on after when you're ready to, to talk about the book. Uh, and, um, and, to, and we look forward to reading the rest of the story uh, of, of your journey. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by executive editor Paul Gladder, edited and produced by Peter Freeby. Special thanks to Religion Unplugged managing editor Megan Clark. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. 
To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at ReligionMag.